We're continuing in our series in the Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 39. Our New Testament complementary passage is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So with your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 5, in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes the honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 39 and continuing in the reading of God's word. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces, joined to it as its two edges, and the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made like it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece and skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth when doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius and topaz and carbuncle was the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth and an agate and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl and onyx and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its own name, for the twelve tribes, and they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two strings of gold filigree and two gold rings, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Then they attached it in front as to the shoulder piece of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, as it seemed above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. 
And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue, and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment with a binding around the opening, so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the cape of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twined linen, and the sash of fine twined linen, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, embroidered with needlework, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold, and wrote on it in an inscription, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then all the work of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that God had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. The covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen. The Ark of the Testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priest, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work. And behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. As far as the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we read and come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see Christ and love him more fully and be conformed to him more closely. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So as I mentioned at the very start of the service, I think if there is a an aspect of Christ's office, Christ functions in the office of the perfect prophet, the one who reveals God's will perfectly and clearly. He also offer, acts in the office of the king, Psalm 2. The Lord said to my, or Psalm 110 actually is the, is the kingly psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Uh, why do the peoples plot in vain? Uh, the kings of earth gather against God and his anointed. 
the kingship of Jesus Christ is something that we take great comfort in and that is a glorious doctrine. The prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ is something that we take great glory in and is a beautiful doctrine, but I think the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ tends to be overlooked. And I do believe that it is one of the most critical, essential, I mean, there. Are, I, I don't want to pit one doctrine against another, they're all essential. But this is certainly a critical and essential doctrine for you and for me today. For a world which needs so badly to hear a message of hope and clarity, and light, and direction. So as we look this morning at this text, last week we asked the question, why does Moses keep repeating this stuff? And this text is a almost word-for-word repetition of Exodus chapter 28. Uh, in Exodus 28, Aaron and the priests, their garments are all laid out in great detail, and now we have almost a word-for-word uh, repetition of that. And I think there are two reasons that God repeats himself. The first is, these passages were meant to be read. They were meant to be heard. And they were meant to be heard by God's people over the course of thousands of years. This isn't just some ancient telephone book we dug up out of the Sinai somewhere and thought, hey, let's do some exegetical analysis of it. This is a really interesting book. This was written for your instruction. This was written by God. God instructed Moses to write it so that his people for centuries would have this in front of them. And I think that's an important part of our answer because what that means is that God knows that you and I need to come back again and again and again. And again, because since the last time that we looked at Exodus chapter 28, like me, you have had a lot of life pass under the bridge. You have had a lot of water go under that bridge. There have been births, there have been deaths, there have been moves, there have been heartaches, there have been joys. There has been a lot of life since the last time that we considered Aaron's garments. And that's one of the reasons for the repetition is because God knows that you and I need regular reminding. And so I love that passage last week because that mercy seat and the, the, the table of God's presence with his people, the bread, the, all of these things are symbols to us of what Eden was supposed to have been. or What Eden was, frankly. That place that we lost. The tabernacle is a physical recreation of Eden. This place of perfect wholeness, this place of communion with God, this place of his protection as the lampstand shines over the bread that's sitting on the table, God's perfect protection, God's perfect presence, God's perfect peace in the middle of a chaotic world. I love that image and we need that image as we move throughout our pilgrim journey. But beloved, do you equally love the image of the priest? How many of you, as we read chapter 39 just now, honestly, think, don't answer it out loud, but think, how many of you were like, uh, can we get to the end of this? Is there some way maybe you could summarize this? 
there's a lot of purple and fine linen and twined and thread and gold and and then purple and fine linen and twined and thread and then purple and fine linen and twined. Surely Moses could have summarized. Surely an editor could have helped make this passage a little more accessible to us. How many of you had at least a similar thought go through your head? Maybe you're not as profane as I am. Maybe you're not so disrespectful of God's word as I'm reading it to be going, could you please just summarize this and move on? But isn't there something Isn't there something somewhere in your head that is going, why do we just keep going over this? My feet are getting tired. I'm standing an awful lot. Moses is painting for us a word picture. He paints for us a picture and he uses words to do it. And if you took anything else away from this passage, I want you to see very clearly in this passage, first, the majesty of the priest. Did you see all of the blue and the purple and the fine twined linen and the gold and the sashes and the diamonds and the, did you, did you hear all those words? Maybe you heard too many of them. Let those words just wash over you and come away with the image that Moses is wanting you to come away with, which is this was a central character, a royal character, a glorious character. As we look at Moses' picture of the great high priest. That's our first thing. The second is, as we noted last week, In each of these repetition chapters, there are different things that are being emphasized. And in chapter 28, if you look back at the first time that we've encountered this, you see a lot of the repetition of the phrase, for glory and beauty, for glory and beauty, for glory and beauty. Also, the ephod is regularly called the ephod of judgment. The, the phrase of judgment turns up several times in chapter 28. You never saw it here in chapter 39. Now, certainly the description was gloriful and glorious and beautiful, but there's a different phrase that you see repeated in chapter 39. In chapter 39, the phrase that you see repeated is, as God had commanded. Did you hear that phrase over and over and over again as we were reading through the text? It appears nine or ten times in this text, as God had commanded. This emphasis on the priest being a perfect copy of something else, intended to draw our eye to something else. So that perfect obedience, that perfect copy is our second point. The first point is this majestic image of the priest. Our catechism, question 25, asks the question, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is, 
Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice in reconciling us to himself and then also in interceding for us. But I want you to note that first part of the answer. Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering of himself a sacrifice. Was that the office of the priest? No. (laughs) The office of the priest was not to offer himself a sacrifice. The office of the priest was to offer another as sacrifice. It always pointed to the insufficiency of the priest himself. I want you to consider another thing as we consider all of this glorious language and the gold and all of that. In Israel's company, in Israel's place as a nation, if you are a random Bedouin trader and you're pitching up in the middle of Israel and you're saying, take me to your leader. I want to trade a bunch of grain for a camel or two. So you pitch up and you say, take me to your leader. Who are you going to assume is the leader? Won't it be the person wearing a crown of pure gold? Won't it be a person that is dressed in blue and scarlet, and fine twine linen with gold threads? Won't it be the person that is the most visually striking person in the entire company? Would that not be the person you would assume is the leader? And yet, was Aaron ever the leader of the people of Israel? To the degree that he ever was, he was a bad one, because he was the one that gave in on the whole uh, uh, calf thing, uh, the golden calf. Uh, so, so whenever we do see Aaron <laughs> in any kind of a leadership position, it's like, oh, no, 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 Aaron, don't do that. Uh, Aaron, the high priest, is never the leader of God's people. It's always Moses. It's Joshua. It's David. The high priest, however, is always the most glorious figure among God's people. And here's why. Here's what I want you to take away from this. Beloved, let me, let me, let me back up and, and, and give this a better context, a better setting. I mentioned in Sunday school today, we have just begun in the adult Sunday school a a series on the cost of discipleship. Looking at Luke chapter 14. And I mentioned in Sunday school today, I think that the church in Northern Virginia, Sterling Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I think that the church generically is poised for one of the greatest revivals and in-gathering of people since the first great awakening. And here's why I say that. Because, number one, and everybody I think has got to be in agreement, we have gone down a cultural movement with transgenderism and identity 
that has led people right up to the gates of hell itself. We have people who have gender dysphoria at the age of 14, 15, and 16 that are making permanent changes to their body. Changes you can't hit the reverse button on. You can get over anorexia, you can get over bulimia, and you can put tattoos on your body to cover over your cutting. But your double mastectomies and your hormone therapies are not things that you come back from, brothers and sisters. And we're about to face an entire generation of people who have been all in and are about to hit a wall saying there is no happiness, there is no joy, there is no meaning. Everything I have done to myself has just made it all worse. Can someone, somewhere, give me hope? The second reason that I think we are poised for a great revival, the second reason is because whatever we did, right or wrong, And I'm not waving any flags one way or the other. But whatever we did as a church in the face of pandemic restrictions forced each and every individual Christian, not just church leader, but each and every individual Christian to ask this basic question. And that is, how important is worship to me? How important is the embodied gathering together with God's people. How important is that to me, to my life, to my Christian testimony, to my Christian witness? And beloved, we have seen Christians that have come down on very opposite sides of this. But I think at the very least, you have seen a lot of people asking that question, how important to my life, is embodied corporate worship. Those are two things that I think give us a very different answer to people that are looking for answers than what we've been hearing in the news. Wherever you ended up on the whole worship thing, you at least acknowledge that our leaders and our science health providers were all saying, yeah, you can worship at home on a laptop. You can worship sitting out by the lake by yourself. Worship is not essential. Liquor stores are essential. Worship is not. You remember those days? You remember that ancient history? That was just two years ago, brothers and sisters. (laughs) My liquor store never got shut down. (laughs) my church, they tried. (laughs) And that was the reality that you and I were living in. We're living in a place where we have been challenged recently by how important is church, how important is worship, how important is the in-gathering, the corporate in-person gathering of the saints. How important is that to your life and your witness, your career, your testimony, everything. And simultaneously, we are at a place where we are seeing young, broken people destroying their bodies, trying to say that this is going to bring them healing and and relief from pain, 
knowing full well that anything that involves spitting in the very face of God and his design for creation is simply going to bring you more pain. I'm sorry, it's not a hateful thing to say. If you rub your hand against the grain of God's created purpose, you're going to get splinters. Can I say it more clearly? Can I say it more simply? God has a created order. He has a created purpose. And the more you and I rub our hands against it, the more you and I pick up splinters in our life and in our persons and all of that. And you and I who know Jesus Christ have something to say. You and I who know Jesus Christ have something to say about where to find your identity. We have something to say about what God's purposes are and how to walk in harmony. We have something to say about how important it is to be in community with one another. We have something to say that says this will cost you your very life. It will cost you husband and father. It will cost you wife and children. It will cost you brothers and sisters. It will cost you your life itself. But beloved, the answer, the life is glorious. Because it's a life of reflecting the harmony of Eden. It's a life of reflecting in my words and in my attitudes what God himself set up and is beautiful. And the difference is, how important is that priest? That's where we circle back around to our text. How important is it to you that you have this glorious figure, royal, noble, covered in gold, your name written, on the precious stones that are on his chest, how important is it for you to know that you have the perfect priest? And here's the answer. You will find that important to the degree that you recognize your need for a priest. You will find that joyful to the degree that you realize that without someone to reconcile you to God, your life of pain and misery and darkness has no hope. You will find that message central to the degree that you find central to your identity the fact that you stand under God's wrath and curse by nature. To the degree that you see your need, the solution to that need becomes even more glorious. To the degree that you see God's wrath rightly poured out on you for your sin, not for that person's sin, not for that cultural sin, for you. To the degree that you see you as rightly deserving God's wrath and curse, beloved, you will see Christ and His mercy and His priesthood and His intercession 
as everything beautiful, everything important, and everything that is glorious. To the degree, beloved, that you see your identity as the prodigal son kneeling in his poverty, in his brokenness, with his head resting in the Father's loving embrace. To the degree that you find yourself there where the light of the gospel is, then that light is reflected in your life and in my life. That great high priest is beautiful. And I hope and pray, beloved, that we as a congregation, that the church in Northern Virginia generally, that Christianity generically, but I'm not responsible for Christians generically, and I'm not responsible for the church in Northern Virginia generically. I'm responsible for me. And you're responsible for you. And so whatever others do, let's you and me be focused on, there's a lot of brokenness out there. There's a lot of hurt out there. There's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of kids out there that are doing horrible, horrible, horrible things to their bodies. Things you don't come back from. There's a lot of hurt that is out there. And beloved, you and I have got the most beautiful answer. We've got the most beautiful reality. We've got this beautiful vision of this stunning figure. This one who alone can bring us back to Eden. The other thing that I want to notice just very quickly is that phrase that's repeated according to the pattern, according to the command. It's repeated often throughout this passage. You see it for the first time at the end of verse 1, as the Lord had commanded Moses, as the Lord had commanded Moses, as the Lord had commanded Moses, all the way down to the very end of the chapter, the last verse, Moses saw all the work, behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. You know, I think here is a danger among faithful, good, Bible-believing Christians. Here is a danger. Have you ever heard a sermon or a series of sermons or at a church that was, their ministry was focused on telling you the ten steps to a better marriage, telling you the six relationship clues for transformation in your life, telling you about the financial uh, program that is biblical finances, or, or maybe the diet program. I remember that used to be a fad for a while, was, was following this Christian diet or that Christian diet. I think what is natural to all of us, what is natural to Christians is to say, okay, I get it, grace, yes, Jesus is my Savior, yes, I got it. But surely there's got to be more to Christianity than this. There's got to be, and and I mean, we're talking about the cost of discipleship, we're talking about how you've got to lose everything in order to, to follow after Christ, 
But that's not what I'm saying. When, when I think that, when, when we think about these sermons or these ministries that are geared around six practical steps for this and ten practical lessons for that. I think what we do is we tend to say, okay, and? Okay, the gospel, and? How does it affect how I vote? How does it affect how I view this issue or that issue? And? How does it affect my marriage? How does it affect... The gospel is okay, but... And? Just don't leave it alone. Tell me what to do. And as a pastor, I hear this often from other people. And I do note a common thread. Whenever someone is standing there going, tell me what to do, it's... I, I, no, I'll say it. It has never once been, tell me what to do. It's always, you need to tell us what to do because I don't like what that doing over there. <laughs> that marriage is clearly jacked. You need to do a series on marriage. Those kids are out of control. You need to do a sermon series on child rearing. <laughs> it's never, my finances absolutely are crashing and burning would you please sit down and disciple me on what God says about my money? Moses keeps saying, this is what is important. These details, just as God had commanded. Because these things were always a pattern of something else. And the more perfect the pattern, the more perfect the picture. And the pattern of this overarching thing, both the priest who draws us back into Eden, but also Eden itself. The purpose of this pattern, and this is the last thing that I want you to get from this, from this encounter with this text. The purpose of this pattern is to bring you and me back into harmony with God. The place of mercy, the place of fellowship, the place of light and protection, the place of harmony with God. And from that place, from you on your knees, grasping the horns of the altar, from you on your knees before the mercy seat, from you on your knees before God, knowing that your only hope is Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. From that place, beloved, and only from that place, can you live Eden? That's the only place that you can live a life that reflects relationships with God that are healed. It's only from that place that you can live a life that reflects relationships with one another that are healed. It's only from that place that you can truly say, 
I love Christ so much that I am willing to cut all ties with mother and father, wife and children, brother and sister, my own life itself. And have that be beautiful, enticing, attractive, the sweet-smelling aroma that we all know that Christians should be. That sweet and inviting smell that draws people unto Christ. Yes, he will be the stench of death unto those that are dying, but let his gospel do that work. His gospel is confrontational enough. The idea that you need someone else's righteousness is confrontational enough. Let Christ be confrontational. Let you and me be in wonder. Let you and me see the pattern and through the pattern the true picture. Let you and me from that place of being on our knees reconciled and at peace with God then to live Eden-filled lives. Eden-pointing lives. Lives that say you can be at peace with God. You can be at peace with His world. You can be at peace with His purposes in your life. And that's going to influence your marriage. It's going to influence your children. It's going to influence how you speak to your neighbors. It's going to influence how you... Speak to people in the grocery store, at school. It's going to influence everything about you. If you can truly do it from this place that says, what a great high priest, what a great Savior, what a great and loving God.